Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. We are going to continue in James, but I got to give you some updates about our church. First one is that I actually got to spend time with the Greek church this morning. Uh, Their pastor was out of town, and I got to come and preach, and they love you guys, and we love them, and it was awesome. They actually do their service in Greek and in English, and so uh, we translated, and so it was the shortest sermon I've ever preached. It was actually like 15 minutes, like in English, but then they added 15 minutes of Greek, so it was really cool. Um, Same with Kyle, like, bro, if you want to, like, as you're studying Greek, like just come to one of the services. It's like so beautiful to hear all of that. And they played the pipe organ. So like all through service, it sounds beautiful. So anyway, they said our, uh, we send greetings from our church uh, to them and then they're sending it back to you guys and they love you and they're glad that they were able to uh, bless us by meeting here, which leads us into, um, we've been praying for a long time, right? To get back to Brighton. And so uh, we're gonna hear back by tomorrow uh, so either tonight or sometime tomorrow about whether we can meet in that temple that's right off of Calm Ave, Cheswick Stop near the reservoir. So guys, if you haven't prayed quite yet, if you're online here, please pray that we can get in a building in Brighton. I sent a message out this week to our members. Our hope has never been in a building. It's always been in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's our hope. We hang our hope on him, not a place, but a place does help us invite people too. It allows us to have a central place to gather as well, to train our kiddos and to spend time in fellowship together. It's great when you can invite your neighbors that's like in the same space that they exist. So our hope's not in a building, it's in a person, but it's helpful as a tool to have that. So please be praying as we hear back. Uh, We'll work on some cost negotiations and all of that, and hopefully it'll work out. And then we can be in there by August 21st. So I need you to pray. Sound good? Okay. Um, so this passage today, guys, uh, we have a smaller crowd. Not sure if you're online with us or not. We love you. We're glad you're there. Uh, but this sermon is like not for the faint of heart. Maybe you guys like read it before you rolled up today. Maybe that's why it's like it. But James pulls no punches today. Uh, the title of today's message is The Problem with Presumption. And we'll get into that in a moment. But as we get started, I've got a question for you. Um, how many decisions do you think you make in a single day? If you were to add that up in your head, how many decisions do you think you make in a single day? Thousands, way more, okay, way more. I appreciate that, Ben. I can always count on you for a shout out, bro. I love that. Um, I was reading, guys, I don't read this often, but came across an article, Psychology Today. Uh, They had a study that the average adult roughly comes up with 35,000 decisions a day. And for some of you, that really scares me that you're making that many decisions in one day. For me too, my wife's afraid of that as well. That means if you like get an average of seven hours of sleep uh, and then the rest of your days you're making decisions, that means you're making 2,000 decisions in one hour. And that means you're also making one decision every two seconds. And that could be about what you say, what you... Uh, what you're going to do, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to look, all of those things. Or ultimately, it means the hardest decision of all. Uh, are you going to watch that next Netflix episode before you go to sleep? Or are you going to you know, watch the next one, keep binging it through the night, right? All hard decisions that we have to make. And then over the course of a year, you and I make 13 million decisions. That is so many decisions you and I make. Big ones, little ones, that's a ton of decisions, 
But if you think for a moment, don't say this one out loud, especially Ben or anybody, don't say this one out loud. But I want you to ask yourself, um, when you make your decisions, how many of those have been poor decisions this past year? Don't say it out, don't say what they are. But what have those decisions been like for you? Name your worst decision in your head. Think about relationally for a minute. Think about financially. Think about what you've said. Think about your worst decision that you've made. Put that in your head for a second. Now, often, here's the question. Why do we make bad decisions? And it's often because one of these three reasons. You make an emotional decision, and so therefore you just, bah, you're kind of rash and just emotional decision. Two, you make a rushed decision. You don't gather the data. You don't seek counsel. Just rushed. Or last, you make a decision without wisdom or biblical counsel or wisdom from another person. That's why we make bad decisions often. So here lies the problem, right? You're making 13 million decisions a year and time is super fast paced, especially in Boston. Some of you have kids. That makes it even harder about what decisions you make. Day in, day out, fast paced world complexities. How do you and I know how to make wise decisions? Like it's almost too overwhelming to think about all the things you have to decide on. Am I going to stay in the apartment? What am I going to do with my job? Am I going to go talk to my boss about this? Am I going to stay in the city? Am I going to move? How do I raise my kids? How do I confront this roommate? You know, what do I do about savings? All of these decisions that you have to make all the time. And it's so overwhelming and it can be too much pressure. And so here's the question that James is seeking to answer today. How do we make good and wise decisions in a fast-paced, complex and challenging world? That's the question he wants to unpack today. How do we make decisions for making 13 million of them in such a fast-paced culture? And essentially, James tells us that by making one decision up front, that that decision will actually positively impact all the 13 million decisions that you're going to make this year. Okay, and here's that one decision he wants you to make up front. He wants you to do this. Seek and submit to the will of God through the word of God. You're going to hear me say that a lot today, so let me say it again. In all your decisions, he wants to make this one first. Seek and submit to the will of God through the Word of God. And that one major decision up front will save you a lot of heartache in the 13 million decisions you'll make. So let me ask you a question. How do you already right now make your decisions? What type of person are you? Are you the pros and cons lister? If you're making you know, a decision, you're going to say, this is the good things about that. Here's the negative that can happen. And if the pros outweigh the cons, then you'll make that decision. For you, that's called the data collector. And that might be you. You're going to research for days and hours and weeks and months to make a decision. And so decisions often take a long time for you, but you're weighing out the pros and cons. That might be how you make decisions. For some of us, we are the happiness testers. That's what we do. We think, will this make me more happy with this decision? Will it bring me maybe more money or maybe more ease or more significance or status to my job? Will this make me happier? And so that's the matrix we use to make a decision. Maybe you're the feeling tester. This is a bit harder one. And sometimes I find myself here. You just say, well, it just kind of like feels right. You know, I kind of feel like I have peace or I feel like this is what I need to do with my life next. And so you kind of feel your way through. The last one is what I have been for the majority of my life before Emily. I call this, this is, I invented this one. This is the half-baked, full-blessed person. You've got a half-baked idea and you just pray that God will bless it as you just march through life in a really hectic way. This is me, okay? You make rushed, 
half-baked decisions and you're like, God, please, I'm gonna throw this Hail Mary. Will you just catch it and make sure my life doesn't fail? That's how I've made the majority of my decisions, pre-Christ especially, pre-Emily especially. And so I think James is in this text looking at and saying, I don't think any of those are good decisions or good frameworks to make decisions. Pros, cons, feeling, half-baked, full-blessed, none of those ideas are a good idea. But he's really trying to focus in how do you make decisions today? And so here's how he starts out in verse 13. He starts out by saying, hey guys, come now and listen. He starts out by saying, come over now and listen. Now listen, James has already been writing a letter. We're like four chapters in, right? And he's like, hey, you, come now, come closer, lean in. So really he's about to get pretty aggressive with what he's about to say here. He's like calling you out. He's waving you over. He wants to show you something important. So he's like, hey, listen, you've missed something. So you come over here now. Have you ever seen that parent? Maybe you were that parent at church where your kid's doing something. And you're like, hey, you come over here. And you're like upset at them. You're trying to get attention. James is a little testy feeling today. So he's like, come now, listen, come over here, lean in, pay attention. You've missed a detail. And so here he continues. He says, come now you, so he has a target audience. He says, come now you who say this. Today or tomorrow, and he's kind of like mocking, by the way, a little bit, okay? He's kind of, this is tongue-in-cheek kind of language. The tone's kind of mockery. He said, come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and make a profit. And then he's like, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And he's like, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for just a little while and then it vanishes. Verse 15, he says, instead, what you ought to do is say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And then he says this, all such boasting is evil. Okay, that's a really strong statement from James to start out calling this sort of arrogant talk evil is really extreme for James. This word evil here actually means something to be morally wrong or it means to be actively against goodness. Meaning when we live in disregard to God's will and making decisions in our life, the Bible says you're actually acting out in evil. In fact, that very word that you see there, evil, that very word is the same word that's used for Satan three times in the scriptures. Meaning that what James is describing here is not just like, oh, it's not the best idea for us to live this way. He's like describing a lifestyle practice that God calls evil. And so what he's saying is that, hey, if we live this way, we're actually more in line with the way of Satan than the way of Jesus. That's a really hardcore language here. If the same word for evil is used for Satan and then James knows that and he puts it together, this type of living is so intense. But the question we got to ask is why? Why is it bad for us to say, I'm going to go to this town and that town, I'm going to spend this much time there. I'm going to work and make a profit. Is that really that evil to like just make decisions like that? Well, here's what James is saying the problem is. And it's called the sin of presumption. And so I adapted this definition and outline from uh, Pastor Vance Pittman. He's a part of the NAM network that we're a part of. And I love this definition he gives because it's so clear. He says this, the sin of presumption is this. It's making life choices apart from seeking 
and submitting to the will of God that's found in the word of God. That's what James says the issue is. So see how James points out their presumption in verse 13. I wanna walk you through this for a moment. And here's how this metaphorical group is talking. They're saying today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and we will spend a year there and we will trade and make a profit. It's very we-centered, we-calculated, we-decided, but it's absent of God. He's talking here about Christians that are making self-focused decisions apart from seeking and submitting to the will of God. So James gives us these examples of where you and I struggle with presumption. We struggle, he says, about where we go, where we travel. He says, we will go into such and such town. And that's an area where you and I might struggle with. I'm just gonna decide where I live and where I go on vacation and where I wanna shop and where I wanna live. And you just act like God doesn't exist at all. James is saying, that's a, that's a problem. How can we be more prayerful about where we go, what we do? James goes even further. He's like, and, they, and the problem is that we, we choose where to live and how long that we wanna live there. Does it seem like that's big of a deal? I wanna live in this town or I wanna live in this city. Well, if we do it in an unprayerful, unwise way, then that's what James is saying is the issue. And again, these folks are just saying, we will spend a year there. We've decided in our own intellect and understanding that this is where God must want me because it meets my comfort levels and my demands and my hopes and my preferences. So I'm gonna choose my preference, maybe regardless of God's plan. And listen, listen, when we let you know, we're in Boston. There's some trash apartments in our city. I get that. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have preferences or want to move. That's, that's, James is not saying it's wrong to move or to go somewhere. He's saying what's wrong is if we make all of our decisions based off our preferences for our comfort rather than God's kingdom. So is it bad to move? No. Is it bad to go to a different apartment? No. What's wrong is that if we don't seek or submit God's counsel in the decisions of our life. Does that make sense? That's the bigger issue. He even gets down to, we're presuming on the type of work or what we do with our lives. He's even saying part of the issue is these folks are saying, we will trade. This is what I'm gonna do with my time. This is where all my effort's gonna go. This is where my 40, 50, 60 hours are gonna be. Now, is James saying it's wrong for you to select a place of employment or a job? No, but he's saying, have you thought about how much time and effort you're putting towards a job? Have you prayed about that job or what you're to do for my glory in that place of employment? Or are you only making decisions about what makes you feel good or at peace? Does that make sense? He's not like shooting at us saying, how dare you have a job and not consider the will of God. He is saying, hey, have you even prayed, sought counsel, considered maybe what God's will is for you in this? Have you done the due diligence to, to pray and consider and seek counsel? And last, he's even saying, hey, some of our goals are not so great. Look at what he says here. The people are saying, we will trade and we will make a profit. Meaning that's their goal in life. They want to seek more. They want to seek gain. So it could be material possessions that you and I are 
purchasing or some aspiration or hope that we put all our material and our vacation and whatever hope we put on that thing. That's what James is saying an issue. Now, if you're like me, you're already kind of uncomfortable because James just stepped all over you and what the issues are. And guys, we've all done this. We've all presumed on God. God, I'm gonna go where I wanna go. Listen, ask me, ask me right now, did I pray about what vacation I was gonna go on this year? Nope, we're going to Disneyland. Is that a sin? Arguably, yes, is what James is saying. Not that I went to Disneyland, but that I even pray or care what God's will was for my summer. Nope. How many of us make similar decisions? God, this is my life. And when I need your help, I'll ask you. In the meantime, I'm gonna live this way and you better bless me as I'm walking. Is that not how a lot of us live? Man, James just like throat punched me this week. I was already kind of sick feeling this week. And then he started doing that stuff to me. And I was like, it's just a lot, James. Like, I just can't get off my back for, can't you have a happy message, James? You're always coming after me, but it's God's word. And so it's from God. And so it's good for our hearts. But guys, he's talking about where you go, how long you spend there, where you work, what you do, what your goals are. He's after everything. Guys, these people, this hypothetical group, they were making major life decisions as if God didn't even exist. But at the same time, they expected God to bless and protect and provide and supply all along the way. That is what is offensive to God. Rather than, God, you bless what I'm going to do, it should be, God, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to seek and submit to your counsel, and then I know that you will bless that. Does that make sense? That's a radical way of thinking. A lot of us Westerners, Americans, we're like, God, I'm going to live my way autonomously, independently, and then I'm just going to ask you to bless what I'm doing. Get over here. I'm calling the shots. I'm the coach. I'm the captain. You come over here and you bless what I'm doing with my life. And that's what James said. That is presumption. That is you being Lord over your life rather than him. Now, do you see why James is in a tizzy about this? Because who's on the throne of your life then? You and me rather than him. So I wish James backed off a little bit, but he doesn't. And so here's what we're going to focus on a little bit, guys. When you make decisions about your finances and your relationships and your job and your career, your home, your family, your health, and you don't seek and submit to the will of God, he's saying you are living a way contrary to the very heart and path that Jesus wants for you. And you choose to go on a path that often leads to hurt and heartache. Guys, I haven't been doing this job incredibly long. I've only been a pastor for like a decade. There's a lot of pastor friends I have that's been pastoring for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And every time we get together, one of the things that often comes up is the heartache we have for our friends or neighbors or folks in our church that have this type of challenge in their life. They chose to live a certain way, make decisions what they thought was best, sought minimal counsel, didn't seek, submit to the word of God, tried to make aspirations and strive for things in life, ask God to bless it. There's numerous heartache, numerous pain. I see time and time again as a pastor, time and time again as a friend, over and over people rejecting to submit and to seek the will of God. And so there's heartache after heartache after heartache. And I think also there's a 
a hard confrontation that James is giving, but he's also trying to be compassionate. Because when you and I go on this path, he's calling it evil. He's saying, this is the way of Satan. Therefore, also saying, I want to point you to the way of Jesus. James is trying to show us a better way to make decisions and to live our life, not for us to just be autonomous about whatever decision we want to make. James's goal is for us to be like his half-brother, Jesus. Do you guys remember how Jesus lived his life? Do you remember how many times he talked about the will of his father over his own? And my friends, you and I are Trinitarian. We believe that God the Father's God, God the Son's God, God the Holy Spirit's God. So if there's anyone who should just have their will be done, it's who? Jesus. But he chose to submit and seek God the Father's will, not his own. John 4, 34, we'll have this on the screen. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus said to the people that were gathered there, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 30, he says again, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but of him who sent me. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven. Why? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then what were those famous words that Jesus said before the cross? Take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Guys, I only pointed out four scriptures to you of Jesus over and over and over again, talking about the will of his father. Imagine if you and I lived that way, what type of harm and heartache and hurt would be removed if you and I were to walk in the will of God. And Jesus is not only just the perfect one that lived in our place, but he's also trying to provide a perfect model for you to live out. So Jesus is inviting you into the life that he lived to do the will of him who sent him. My friends, each decision that you guys that we make have got to be filled with prayer and scripture and counsel. Those are the three things I want you to make all your decisions with. Prayer to God, scripture to know what's right, and then wise counsel who knows you well and the Bible well. Guys, you will make good financial decisions, good marital decisions, good conflict resolution skills, you will know when to move somewhere, when to stay somewhere, who to date. Those will be healthy things for you. That's what James is after. And ultimately, that's what God's after. Let us not presume on God. God, I'm going to live this way and you better bless it. No, no, no. Let's, let's live according to the way that God will already bless. Does that make sense? Guys, this is huge for us to point out. And that's the very biggest thing that James wants us to see is to seek and submit to the will of God. Guys, there's... Three quick points I just want to draw out for you uh, from the text. So this would be a little bit shorter. Uh, hopefully I say that every week, right? Who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens here. Maybe I'm presuming on that moment. Not sure. Um, but there's like three big reasons why James is like, mm -mm, not a good idea to presume on God. Here's the first one he says. It's because your perspective and my perspective, it's limited. It's limited. That's why you can't just live your life carelessly asking God to just bless everything and kind of live happily on your own because your perspective is li limited. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know 
what tomorrow will bring. That's why you can't just roll up anywhere you want to go. Make decisions about the next year, two, three, four, five years of your life because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So why try to make all these decisions on your own when you have a limited perspective when God has an unlimited perspective? That word know there in verse 14, yet you do not know, means that you don't have some detailed knowledge that someone else has. You don't have the detailed experience that someone else has. It means that you're only aware of a specific fact or piece, but not the whole picture. Guys, the one thing we know about life is that life is uncertain. We don't know the stuff that's gonna happen to us tomorrow. There's probably some surprises in your own family plans that happened today. You had a plan, here's what I was gonna do today, and it didn't happen because you have a spouse, roommate, child, or you're alive, right? That's what happens all the time. The one certainty about life is that life is uncertain. And when you make decisions without seeking and submitting to the will of God, you are choosing to close your eyes, turn this way, and walk on to Calm Ave. It's just a terrible decision. It's not gonna be good for anybody, especially you. So guys, basically the bottom line of this is you don't know what you don't know. Seems pretty simple, but profound in such a way if you know that you can trust the one with unlimited perspective. Guys, just a quick personal story with this. And you've heard some of my journey with foster care and adoption, but I don't think I've shared uh, this story. Uh, my wife and I had taken uh, many trips to Boston to pray, to seek out where God would want us to have us to plant a church. And we felt for whatever reason, numerous times we would drive up to Everett. We'd drive up to Everett. And when we, we this was again before 2017, we'd drive to Boston. I don't know how many times we came to Boston to pray, meet with pastors. And we drove to Everett and all the time we parked out of Everett High School. We had no idea why we kept going to Everett over and over and over again. We had no understanding. We had really no reason of it. Uh, we had asked, you know, is, is, does the church need to be in this community? Um, and there's, yes, there needs to be church in the community. So we started praying about that. Okay, how, where do we plant? What does it look like? So Everett was one on the top list of us potentially planting a church. We got research and we got stats, we got information, our hearts were drawn there. And we were like, God, is this what you're having us to do? All along the while, while we were doing these trips, my wife and I were also praying about foster care and adoption, as you guys had known. And for whatever reason, uh, through counsel and care, uh, we had understood that we are not to apply to be foster parents in North Carolina. So we held back on that for several years because if there's a little one that had family, um, we didn't want to have to travel back from Boston, North Carolina, make it hard on that child. So we waited and waited, waited. We get to Boston and uh, we meet this little girl, Kiana, of course, the next month right after we moved to Boston. And we found out from her biological mom that she was at Everett High School. Every time we went up to pray for her, she was in school there. And we were, we were like, that's why we felt drawn there. Over, we didn't have We'd have, we had limited perspective. We didn't have the information. We prayed and sought counsel. But for whatever reason, the, the circumstances didn't make sense for us to go and plant there with where Koa Brookline was. But we don't understand, God, what were you doing? Why are we keep praying over this school and praying over the kids? It's because my daughter was there. Unborn daughter was there in that high school. There was information and knowledge I did not have. But in God's grace, he wanted us to be there and pray for that little girl. And so all I'm saying is that you probably have thousands of those stories 
in your own life, or maybe you have one, that's great too. But what I'm saying is that you and I have limited information and we can't make decisions based on our limited information. So we need to invite in scripture, prayer, and counsel. And then over time, we pray, God, would you reveal to us why you may have us have a preference towards something or you're leading us in a direction, would you show us? But you and I have a limited perspective. You may not know why you have the desires you have or the dreams you have, but you've got to submit them to the word and prayer and good counsel. So that little story is just a good example. We weren't meant to plant there. We weren't meant to plant there, but we were meant to pray there. And, and drive there and seek God about foster care and adoption. And then now we're no like, yeah, of, of course we felt drawn there. This makes, this makes sense. So it's a beautiful story for our own family to see that our perspective is limited. God's is unlimited. And he wants us to depend on him. Job chapter 28, 24 says, for God looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. And what that means for us, guys, is that nothing escapes God's knowledge and his wisdom. So therefore, shouldn't you pursue it? If you're unsure about the future, where to live, what to work, how many kids to have, when to stay, should we move? Shouldn't we reach out to the one who looks to the ends of the earth, sees everything, has all knowledge and wisdom? Shouldn't I seek him and pursue that wisdom? and wait on him to move and to lead me, right? That makes sense, right? It makes logical sense, but it's hard to apply. And that's what James's point is. We've got to get partly out of logic's way. Yes, we use logic. Yes, to-do lists are fine, but you have a limited perspective. You're limited with what you know with your gathering of data. You don't know what tomorrow brings. So trust the one that lives outside of time and space. Make sense? That's the first thing. Number two, James is saying, hey, don't presume on God, not just because your perspective is limited, but because your flesh is deceitful. Flesh is just another word for your heart, your mind, your desires. It's just deceitful. And we get this from verse 23. It says, today or tomorrow, we will go into that town and that town. I'm gonna spend a year there. I'll trade and make a profit. We'll come back to that, make a profit. The illustration that James is using is again about a group of people who live for themselves without considering if that's really the direction that God wants them to go. So the group in this illustration says, we're gonna go to that town. We're gonna spend as much time as I want there. And then I'm gonna get what I want from there. And then I'm gonna be about a prophet, aka I'm gonna get what I can from that town. Then once I do, I'm gonna move to the next town. Guys, if there's not an analogy that really reminds us of how many, many folks treat Boston. I don't know what does. Go into Boston. I'm going to live here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to get what I want, that profit, whatever that is, and I'm going to be gone. And many of our friends and neighbors may not consider what would God have for us here in this city. And my friends, listen, for some of us, you may stay here a long time. You may be moving soon. You may be moving in a couple years and that's not the issue James is talking about. It's when you're there, wherever you are planted, are you submitting and seeking the will of God there? Or are you about making a profit? What can you gain from wherever you are? Guys, we've got to have a different approach as Christians. Wherever you're planted is where you seek to grow. 
And where you seek to grow, you're trying to provide fruit and shade for others. That's the Christian life. And for you and I to think, I want to do this job so I can get this and do that, whatever, I'm going to get a degree, I'm going to move on, whatever that is, that's a consumer-driven rather than a Christian-driven mentality. We can't think that way. That phrase, to make a profit in verse 13, means to be about gain. It describes the people that have a driving lust for more. A people that says, we're not content with our current circumstances, so we seek out other circumstances. Guys, how many decisions do you and I honestly make with that mindset? I just want more. I'm not content with where I am, what I have, who I am, so I've got to get more. But friends, you know that contentment's not found there. Because the place that you are now is probably the place you did actually maybe want a couple years ago. Now you finished that degree, you got that job, maybe now you're married, you got those kids. Are you content? Maybe your contentment was never about circumstances. My friends, contentment comes when you trust that the place God has you in, according to the plans he has for you, is the place you can have contentment because it was never in that circumstance, but it was in him. Paul shared the same perspective in Philippians chapter four. He said this, I have learned, and I hope all of us would learn this. I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know what it is to abound. Maybe it was possessions or resources or comfort. But he says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him because of him, because he strengthens me with himself. So what's the key to contentment? Contentment, listen, this is so key to our hearts because our flesh will lie to us. It's deceitful. Contentment is not found in a new set of circumstances, but it's found by a new satisfaction with Christ. Every time you feel like there's a itch that you just got to scratch this new desire, you got to change the furniture in your house. I don't know what it is for you. I've, we've got all kinds of weird stuff in our house that we do. That when we scratch an itch, oh, I got to go on a vacation. Whatever it is, we just have this angst for more. We're seeking that profit lifestyle. I want to gain more because I'm discontent with the little or whatever that I have. And when that happens, I got to realize no new set of circumstance can satisfy me. It's really, it's really Christ that my heart needs. And every time I start itching for more, wanting more, wanting change, it's really because my heart has grown distant from God. And I think that creation can satisfy over what we always say, the creator. And that's what's happening with these people. I'm going to, listen, remember the text, I'm going to move this city. I'm going to spend this much time there. I'm going to trade. Why? To make this profit, to get this gain. This circumstance would change me. And then what's it say? It wraps around to the very beginning of the verse. Then I'll go to another town, another city. I'll go to this place. We've got to be mindful of this. Again, is it wrong to move? No. Is it wrong to have different desires? No. But what is wrong is if we don't seek and submit God's will in the midst of that. Jeremiah tells us, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? It means this. That means that your heart will just lie to you. It's sick. It won't tell you the truth. It'll say, oh, you've got to have this. If you have this, oh, you'd be so much happier. And then you chase it. And while you chase it, you get fatigued, you fall, you burn out, and maybe you get it. 
And when you have it, you realize it has no life to it. And you burnt yourself out running for it. Guys, that's one of the number one things I see as a pastor. One of my really, 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 really good friends in the city that's not part of this church is moving soon. And I'm watching this brother in Christ run and chase something that will end up hurting him. Numerous conversations, numerous times of prayed with him, cried as I'm talking to him, chasing something that he thinks will give him life. Gave him this warning, told him what happens. And then I just have to watch as a pastor and a friend what's going to happen to this brother that's chasing what James is talking about. Guys, this is heartbreaking for me. And I'm sure that you've seen this from your high school friends, right? Your college friends, Maybe someone at work, you're watching them pursue what you thought and they thought would give them life. And even if they attained some shape of success, that success came at a great cost to their family or their health or their life or their joy. My friends, we can't be about the gain because that gain, if not Christ, is loss. So friends, we can't presume on God. Why? Why? Simply because our flesh is deceitful and it will lie to us. Number three, why we can't presume on God, James says, is that because our time is short. Your time on this earth is short. James kind of punches us in the face in verse 14. He's like, what is your life? How can you make all these decisions about where you're going to go and what's going to happen tomorrow? You have no knowledge about what tomorrow has. What is your life? He's doing like the whole God and Job moment where God's like, where were you when I created this? And Job's like, I'm sorry, you're right. I wasn't there. Like, that's what James is kind of doing here. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. I think James took a trip to Boston back in the day. He gets what a mist is. That word mist reminds you of those cold Boston winters. When you walk outside and that great 20 degree weather Josh, mate, ride your bike to work in the morning, 20 degree weather, I don't know. And you breathe out and you're like, wow, that looks really cold. And then where is it in five seconds? It's gone. That's the analogy that James is giving to mind. You are a mist that's here for a little time and then it's gone. James is saying that if you look at everything in light of eternity, yes, our lives are valuable. He's not talking about the value of your life when he's saying you're a mist. He's talking about the timing of your life. And it's very short. Our lives are like a mist. We appear for a little time and then we vanish. And so James is reminding us of how often we make plans like our time is unlimited. Thinking before I really start living for God, here's what we do. I gotta finish that degree program. I gotta get that job. Man, once I finish this house redecoration or once I get my business up or once I, you know, get these kids into school or once we get done with the summer, then I'm gonna start living for God. Then I'm gonna start reading my Bible. Then I'm gonna start sharing the gospel. Once I get things settled here in my life, then I'm gonna like reconcile that relationship. And we think we just have endless time and we start making our own decisions. And James saying, man, you, your life is like a mist. What's really important for you spending your time, your resources, your effort on? He's kind of shaking us and saying, don't presume that you're in charge of your life, that you have all this ample time. Your life is short. So what are you giving it to? How are you investing in it? So with that mindset, I found this great quote, Bible theologian Warren Worsby says this. He says, since life is so brief, 
We cannot merely afford to spend our life and we certainly cannot waste our life. We must therefore invest our lives in those things that are eternal. So as you're thinking about the decisions you make, the vacations you go on, what you choose to save for, what your goals are in life, those things as Kyle led us in prayer are not bad things. Those are good things. But when you put your hope and your effort, your resources, your time, your energy into all of that as the ultimate thing, you've just made an idol. And that idol never actually serves you. It's like a master calling more time, give me more money, and it never gives back. So guys, your time, my time is very, very limited on this earth. What are you doing with it? How are you investing in it? It's brief. What matters? Who matters? Think about who lives in your apartment complex. What's a small team at work that you work with? What really matters? How they irritated you? How they frustrated you? Or where their soul's going for all eternity? Think about the things that really matter at the end of this. What are you going to regret maybe? When you sit on maybe your deathbed, Lord willing, when you're 80, 90, what are you going to regret? Is it that you didn't get the next position at work? You didn't actually buy that house? Or is it something way more eternal, way more meaningful? Guys, my family is uh, going through this small little parenting book. It's actually a parenting book for each kind of age of your kid. And it kind of goes through each grade and it talks about some mile markers from the life for some educators, talks about some developmental thing from, I don't know, whoever works with developmental thing in developmental world for children, child education. I don't know, guys, you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. I'm just reading the book, okay? So I'm reading this book. It's teaching me about these things. And one of the things it has you do is it has you have to take a giant bowl and you have a marble in the bowl for every week your kid is not yet an adult. When they turn 18, you should run out of marbles. When you look at this and you visualize that thing, I'm like, I don't have enough time. My kids are gonna grow up quickly and what are they gonna remember about their dad? Are they, are they gonna say, man, man my dad, he, he would preach these great sermons, which I, clearly I don't, but my dad preached these sermons and he worked really hard, but I missed them. Didn't get to spend a lot of time together. But he sure did love that church. What? Or man, he, he really, he traveled a lot to make sure he could raise support and take care of that church. And he shared the gospel with the neighbors. But man, I sure wish he would help me with my math homework. Wish he would spend some more time reading to me. Talking to me about the wounds that I had throughout the day. Because that's the stuff that grips me, that keeps me awake. Am I going to be some quote, faithful, um, successful pastor? And then my kids could be like, yeah, I had a great pastor, but didn't have a great dad. Life is so short. What matters? Who matters? Because it matters for all of eternity. So it's not to scare you, but it's to sober you up, to think about what's next. Last thing here is not necessarily what's a danger to presuming on God, but something more positive. It's a, it's a clear path. Our path is clear is the last thing I want you to see. Verse 15 says, instead, rather than living this way, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, then you should do this or that. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right things to do and you fail to do them, that's sin. James is just very clear about that. So guys, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? How do we know? How do we seek it and submit to it? What is it? Romans 12, 2 tells us, it says, do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, which is three things, which is good, meaning it's something that's best, something that's acceptable, meaning it gives pleasure and satisfaction, and it's perfect, meaning it, it leaves you full because it's God's full plan for you. The will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Guys, the enemy will trick you into thinking that God is trying to rob you of joy if you go for his will. But guys, God's joy for you is found in walking in his will. So guys, what's the alternative to presuming on God? It's making decisions through seeking and submitting to the will of God found in the word of God. We went over this briefly before, but here's how we're gonna end. These are gonna be rapid fire, six ways. And you're like, what are we doing here? Yeah, six ways, super quick, on how you actually make wise decisions. James says, if you know what's right, you don't do it, it's sin. It hurts you, it hurts others. That's what sin is. It's against God's ways for your flourishing. So here's six ways the Bible already says this is what you should do. Number one, what's the Bible say? If the Bible says something that's different than your will, don't do it. Don't sleep with that person. Don't take that substance. Don't use your money that way. Don't go to that place. Just don't do it. Hurts you, hurts others. What does the Bible say? 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. What's the Bible say? That's a clear path for you. Number two, have you really prayed about it? Like, don't just Jesus, yeah, I prayed about it. Have you really prayed about it? Like, prayed, sought the scripture, sat in silence, waited for him to speak. Have you prayed more than five minutes every day about it? James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom in a decision, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, without stopping. Have you really prayed about that major or minor decision? Have you really actually prayed about it? Taken notes, journaled it, wrote your thoughts out, checked your motives. Have you really prayed about it? Seek the scriptures, seek the Lord in prayer. Number three, what's your motivation? What's your motivation in the decision you're gonna make? We've talked about this before. Is it about building God's kingdom or building your castle of comfort? Those are the biggest things we need to consider. When you're making a decision, are you thinking, oh, this would be really nice for me. It'd make my life a lot easier. That's an okay thought, but that's gotta be submissive too, but your will, not mine, God. It's okay for you to want life to be a little easier, no doubt. No doubt a little bit more money helps sometimes, guys, I get it. It's okay for you to have more rest. It's okay for you to change your job. But if your main goal is just, I just want an easy life, that's what I live for, man, you're gonna hurt yourself. You're gonna hurt yourself living that way. So what's your motivation? Is it to build God's kingdom or is it your castle? Matthew 6 says, don't be anxious about your life. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, aka wherever you work, who you should date, who you should marry, whether you should move, can you afford a house? He's saying, stop worrying about temporal things. Focus on eternal things. With that decision, are you more focused God's kingdom or building your castle. Number four, this is key. I harp on this just about every three weeks, I feel like, okay? What has wise counsel told you? Wise counsel is defined by this. They know God's word well, and they know you well. They can cut through your over Jesified Christian stuff and get right to your heart. Wise counsel is, here's the information I know, here's what I'm trying to make. With what you know about me and what you know about God's word, what do you think that God would have for me? 
Proverbs 11 tells us to do this type of thing. It says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So guys, what has wise counsel told you? Number five, just simple one, how's your heart? How's your heart? If you and I are seeking wisdom from God, but we're walking away from God and the choices in our life, then how do we expect to hear from God? If we're rolling around in sin, making decisions away from him, then how can we maybe hear him clearly? Does that make sense? So how's your heart even in your daily life? Trying to make a big decision, but you're not sure how to hear from God because maybe sin has overtaken you. And so hear God's invitation to come to him, to spend time resting in him. What you need is not an answer to your decision. You need an answer for your heart. Why do you keep going to the sins or this issue? So there's not condemnation. There's comfort, rest, and a new life, a new way to live. Last thing is, do you see God guiding you or the enemy tempting you? Sometimes we say, well, God just opened up a door for me. Not every door that's opened you should walk through. Okay, you guys went to high school. You shouldn't walk through every door that's open. You guys went to college, some of you. You shouldn't walk through every college dorm room just because the door's open, okay? Not every open door of opportunity is a door that God opened. So when something opens, we need to consider, am I tempted because that can give me more? And so therefore I'm gonna just abandon everything else? Or should I say, okay, that, that's a door of opportunity. It's open. Yeah, I can maybe get more money. Yeah, that can be more exciting for my family. But is that God's will for me? Do I have to, is that going to cost me more away from the eternal things if I go that path? For some of you in this room, I've had these conversations with you and I was so, like, we've got a brother in the back, I won't mention his name, but I love his mentality on work because he's like, man, if I go another level of my work, I can't do church stuff. I can't share the gospel with friends and neighbors because I'm going to get caught up so high on this level. So I'm fine to be right here in my job. I'm not saying that all of us have to do that, but that's a wise way of thinking. Think, sure, I could have more money. I could go further. I could manage more teams, but I'm going to be working 80 hours a week. And that's not worth it because my life is short. So do you see God guiding you or the enemy tempting you for something for yourself? Guys, perhaps we would have tr less trouble finding the, the will of God, the particular will of God, is if we followed more the general will of God that's revealed in scripture, the six things I just gave you. Guys, you're going to have a ton of decisions that you're going to make this next year. 13 million decisions coming your way. And there's a clear path. You don't have the particulars, but there's a path. And if you walk this way, wise counsel, the word of God and prayer in this church community, we will watch God bless you, take care of you. You will go through hard times, but God will do it in, through a purpose and a reason for his glory and our good. So church, we've talked about wisdom before, but let's walk in that wisdom and not presume on God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.